you guys will grab a Bible and turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Thanks, Sam. We got three more sermons left. Is that right? Yes. Three more. After this one, two more, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is my uh, my last sermon in the book of Colossians. Sounds like things are going well up there with Tom. (laughs) Might have to stop and pray for him again. All right, let's all stand up as we read God's word, all right? God's holy, perfect, timely word. This is where we need to set our eyes and our attention this morning, all right? So we're starting in verse 18 and going all the way to 4-1. All right, so let's hear God's word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, Provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You guys can take a seat. So this morning, uh, we're going to dive right in, because we have a lot to cover. Uh, This is one of those texts that I would love to preach on for an hour, two hours, but we just don't have that. So um, we're going to just dive in, and uh, our, our big overarching theme this morning is that since we are in Christ, uh, we are to live out our new life in our work and in our family. Okay, so uh, Colossians uh, has been talking about this idea of being in Christ, being transformed by Him, being saved by Him, by grace, through faith in Christ alone, and then how that gospel transforms our whole life. Right? God doesn't leave any part of our life untouched. He wants the whole pie, as it were, not just a slice of the pie. Okay, And so we're looking this morning at family and at work. So our first uh, point, our first heading this morning is that we live out our new life in our marriage. So we're talking about wives and husbands here, in particular verses 18 and 19. So the way that Paul kind of lays out this section is kind of a, a rapid fire list of commands to be obeyed. And uh, he gives these commands, followed by a reason or purpose for these commands. And I think that each of these six groups are addressed like this, except for one uh, where uh, there's no reason given. But this first pairing, wives and husbands, addresses how the gospel affects our marriage. How Jesus affects our marriage. Okay? So let's read it one more time. Verse 18. Wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting 
to the Lord. So notice there, you'll see that, that first command, submit, and then you'll see the reason. The reason is, as is fitting to the Lord. Now we know as we come to this first one, uh, that as, as Paul kind of focuses on the wives first, that this idea of submission, this idea of, of being under the leadership of another person, especially for women in our day, is highly unpopular. Sometimes it's for good reasons. Meaning, uh, sometimes it's unpopular because of the way that a man has abused his power in a relationship. May it be physically or mentally or whatever it may be. But other times, it's highly unpopular for bad reasons. Say it's a, a place of where, um, you know, we talk about terms like uh, women's liberation movement or extreme feminism. Uh, where it's elevating a place or, or really distorting God's view for who a, woman, who a woman is and what her role is in marriage. However, what we see here is that there is a basic order that God has created, God has set up for us in the marriage from the very beginning of time. We look back at Genesis 1 and 2 and we see this as a very beautiful thing. God giving to the husband a beautiful and wonderful helpmate. And Paul says this order is fitting here in this text. But first, let's understand what it means to actually submit. What does this term mean? Because there are a lot of misunderstandings about this term. So let me read two quotes to you real quick to get us on the same page. The first one, submission, on the other hand, suggests a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. Voluntary putting oneself under the leadership of another. And the second quote, talking about this idea of submission, that it's based on one's own recognition of God's order. Based on one's own recognition of God's order. So it's important for us to see that this has nothing to do with devaluing a wife's worth or dignity or importance or their role in marriage. In fact, when this role is embraced and applied in a marriage, it is a beautiful thing and it speaks to that dignity, that worth, that value, that importance, that role that God has given the wife. And it's a beautiful thing when that is played out in the context of a marriage. But Paul doesn't just speak to the wives. He also speaks to the husbands in this text. He doesn't leave the husbands off the hook as it were. He kind of goes one up in one way. He gives two commands, okay? Two commands and no reasoning. It's kind of like God says, just do it, okay? This is what you got to do. I'm not telling you a reason why. It's kind of like when a parent says, because I said so, okay? So what are these two commands? The first one is this, love your wives. Love your wives. It seems so simple. And yet it's one of the hardest things that we can ever try to do. To love your wife. Ephesians talks about it. As loving your wife as Christ loves the church. Even that verse would make us pause and be like, wow, how convicting it is. But this word love, it carries so many different meanings in our culture. We hear about it in our songs. We, hear, we watch it in our movies. And it has all these different definitions. So what is God talking about here? One has defined it this way, that it denotes a caring love, a deliberate attitude of mind that concerns itself with the well-being 
of the one loved. It's not just a feeling. It's a commitment to say, I am in a, a covenant of marriage with you. I will love you, no matter if I feel like it or not. The question is to husbands, do we love our wives this way? Is this the picture that we are giving to our wives of Jesus Christ? The second one is interesting. It says this, do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. Think about it. Why would he say, do not be harsh with them? Maybe it's because of our, how easy we, we get impatient with our wives. Maybe it's the patience that we once had that seemed endless when we were dating. That now that we're married, it's very far, you know, very sparse, right? When I, was, when I was dating Katie, I probably had all the patience in the world. She messed up on something or did something mad. Oh, it's okay. No problem. No problem. But now that we're married, it's kind of like, oh, you messed up. We're done. You know? I'm mad at you. Right? The patience that we once had, we don't have anymore. Maybe it's because of our tendency to abuse our leadership role in the marriage that Paul says, don't be harsh. Right? We said that sometimes... A husband might uh, uh, abuse his authority physically, mentally, emotionally. And maybe that's why Paul is saying, don't be harsh with your wife. But whatever reason Paul is giving here, or he doesn't give here, but whatever reason he has in his mind, it is important for us to heed this call and to not be harsh with our wives, but to love them like Christ. Going back to that first command, love your wives and do not be harsh harsh with them. But the gospel doesn't only affect the marriage. Paul goes on to say that we are to live out our new life in Christ in our family. So talking about parents and children. So first marriage and now parents and children. Now I've often told people that being a father is probably one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my life. Amen. Um, I, think, I think it's harder than being married. Uh, maybe that's not true of everybody, every man, but for me, being a father is probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. There is nothing that, that drives me towards my end and drives me towards my limits and shows me my faults like being a dad. It's hard work. And don't get me wrong, I love my kids. I love my kids and, uh, and I grow to love them more and more each day. We kind of joke around the running joke uh, with my oldest, Hannah Grace, is that uh, she turned to me a little after she was three years old. She said, did you know, Dad, that I didn't even like you until I was three years old? <laughs> what I didn't say was the feeling was mutual. <laughs> but parenting is hard, okay? Parenting is hard, especially parenting young kids like many of us have. We, there, there's few other places in our life where we recognize our limitedness. We recognize our frailty. We recognize how little we can do and how much we need Jesus. How, much, how easily we fall. How easily we can't obey the commands that God has given us. And that's where the hope of the gospel is so sweet to parents. Especially here as we talk about fathers. But the first thing here is that in verse 20, what Paul does is he addresses the child. He says, look, it's a two-way street. It's not just a parent doing his job, but the child has a job too. That's why we care here about, at New City Fellowship, care about instructing 
our children in the ways of the Lord. That's why Tom's out there now. That's why Heidi's out there now. Loving on our kids, teaching them the gospel, helping them to understand this command of children, obeying your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. You know, it's funny, being a dad, I read this command, I said, you know what, you know, you're always asking, why is Paul, or the writer, doing what he says? You know, why is he writing what he says? It's almost like he anticipates the child's question, but what about, but what about when, or what about when this, looking for a loophole, Right? He says, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, obviously, that doesn't include when your parent is asking you to sin or calling you to do something contrary to walking with the Lord. But it, he says, in everything, God's giving you your parents for a reason. But then he turns to the parent, and particularly turning to the father, and says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, I was trying to think of like a word picture, just trying to think about what it means to provoke something. What came to mind was a little kid, I'm sure I did this when I was a little kid, but a little kid seeing a beehive and just saying, he's got a stick in his hand and said, you know what, I gotta go up and poke that thing. I gotta go up and poke it, I gotta agitate it, I, gotta, I kinda gotta get them mad, I gotta do something, right? You know, I, I did that before as a kid, I'm sure other ones, have. I'm sure Caleb's going to do it this summer. <laughs> but this, uh, this idea is, uh, let me give you a quote here, to rouse to anger. To rouse to anger. That's what it means to provoke. To agitate, to irritate, to rouse to anger. I think about how many times as fathers it is easy for us to provoke our kids. Maybe we do it, um, you know, I was thinking about why I provoke my kids. Maybe it's just from my own enjoyment and laughter. I'm just being honest. Sometimes I provoke my kids just for the heck of it, right? I'm having a bad day, and I just, I'm going to get them mad about something. <laughs> Somehow it's going to make me feel better. Maybe other times it's getting back at them for something they did to you, right? It sounds childish, but I know that we do it as fathers. Well, at least I do. Provoking our children. We should, we should come to grips with that and say, God, forgive me for doing that. Forgive me for provoking my children when I should be leading them to you. But you know what's even more convicting is the reasoning here. The reasoning says, lest they become discouraged. So when we provoke our children, we can lead them towards discouragement. Another translation says to lose heart. Think about this. Why are discouraged children such a bad thing? Why are they such a bad thing? Well, one reason is that because, obviously, the parent is supposed to encourage the child, build them up, and give them a picture of Jesus. But here's the kicker. Discouraged children usually turn to other things to find encouragement. They turn to something else. They will seek encouragement. And if it's not from you, coming from the Lord, it's going to be to other things, to other people to other habits that don't honor the Lord. That is convicting and sobering for me as a father. See, fathers have great influence over the lives of their children. Whether they're there or they're not there. They have great influence in their lives. And we have to use that influence to show them a picture of Jesus and not of our sinful flesh. But what about moms? 
Why are they not addressed here as Paul talks about the family? Well, one reason is probably because the father, biblically, is to take the lead of being the spiritual head of the family. Just like he is a spiritual leader in the marriage, well, the father is the head of the family. His role is not just to go and, and earn money and make, it, and make a living, but his role is to provide that spiritual nurturing and education and growth for his children alongside of his wife, but he is to take the lead in that. But also, as I was studying, uh, some of the commentators were pointing out that Paul could have very well intended for the idea of both parents to be in view here in this word. Uh, one uh, commentator, he, he points it out this way. He says, but since in the modern family, mothers often appropriately take equal responsibility for raising children, and indeed in many families are the only parental authority, it's entirely valid to apply this verse to both fathers and mothers. So mothers can be included in this command, in this idea. So fathers and mothers and their children, we all have special responsibilities to the Lord. Children are to obey their parents, to honor them in everything. For this pleases the Lord, it will go well with them in the land, as we talked about earlier in the service. And then fathers have that special role of leading their families spiritually alongside of their wives to help your kids grow up in a place where they know who Jesus is and they can love him and serve him the way that God wants them to. Well, this last realm or this last area that Paul talks about is kind of a lengthy one. And uh, we're going to see that God calls to live out our new life in our work. And in this a relationship between what the text says, a master and a slave. So turn your attention to verses uh, 22 through 4.1. Now this is where we could spend an entire lecture or seminar or series on this passage. It's, it's, there's a lot here. But what I want to do particularly for us real quick is to look, one, at the immediate context and then really jump to the application for us in our world. Okay, so we're going to look first at this issue of master and slave, and then we're going to kind of make a jump towards worker and boss, or employer and employee. Okay, so just so you know where we're going. So first, let's look at the uh, sticky wicket, as uh, Sant says sometimes, of how Paul handles the issue of slavery here. How Paul is uh, handles the issue of slavery here. At first glance, Reading this text, it may seem like the Bible and God are endorsing the institution of slavery here. At least makes you scratch your head, right? The instructions for slaves to obey their masters and everything, and vice versa for masters to rule over their slaves. But if you allow me just a few moments to, to give some qualifying uh, uh, points here from my study that I think will be helpful. Then the first one is this, that slavery was a normal part and a vital part of the ancient world's economy. Alright? It was a normal part of their everyday life. For many of us, we have not grown up with explicit slavery. We've had, we have slavery in the world today. It's still a part of it. Human trafficking, all that kind of stuff still exists. But for us, we didn't grow up in, say, uh, you know, the time before uh, the Civil War in the American South. Okay? But for them, 
They grew up and depended on this system of slavery in their economy, much like America did, much like England did in times past. But it's also important for us to understand that not all forms of slavery were like what we are used to hearing about in, say, the American South before the Civil War. That there are different types of slavery. For example, indentured slave servitude, where someone might say, hey, uh, I will be your slave for seven years, and uh, maybe I'll work off a debt, or we'll work something out. Um, but uh, it's an indentured type of slave slavery. What I'm saying is that there are different types of slavery, not just the one that we're used to hearing about in the Americas, okay? Now, that doesn't make it right, but that's just a point of clarification. The second point of clarification here is that Paul is not endorsing or condoning the institution of slavery here. Rather, he is commenting on it as it stands in the Colossian context, okay? This is in no way an endorsement of the institution of slavery found in Paul's day. He's not saying slavery is a good idea or this system is a good idea. Let's keep it in place. He is commenting on it from a gospel point of view as it stands in that context there in the Colossian church. Number three is this, and this is important for us to see, that Paul is implicitly undermining the institution of slavery and thus condemning it in God's eyes by the instructions that he gives to slaves and masters. Meaning that if this was carried out, right? So if slaves did what Paul said here, and if masters did what they said here, then guess what? The institution of, of slavery would be demolished, right? If masters treated their slaves or employees with fairness and justice, like in God's eyes, it would totally flip the system upside down. If slaves said, you know what, my ultimate boss is God, I'm working for him, I'm doing a great job working whatever I do, work heartily unto the Lord and not for men, it flipped the system upside down. Now only God knows why, in his wisdom, he chose to do it this way, to talk about it implicitly rather than explicitly. Why did Paul not just give an explicit command to say slavery is evil or slavery is wrong or stop it? We don't know. But we do know that it's not endorsing and that is implicitly turning the system upside down and in essence demolishing it if this were to be carried out. Now with these things in mind, I want to go back to verses 22 through 41 and really talk about how this for us today relates to the boss and the worker, okay? How we view our relationships in work and our work itself. Because I think that's one of the big applications for us as we read this text, okay? So the majority of us will spend uh, probably a lot of time in our lives working, okay? So outside of sleeping, um, there's probably not something else that we will do more in our life than work, okay? That's just a fact of our lives, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to work. And we're going to talk about why in a minute. But as Americans as a whole, we don't really have the best relationship with work. And what I mean by that is either we have work as an idol and we work too much, or work is not an idol and we work too little. We have a hard time living in between those two extremes. Work too much 
or work too little. Our attitudes about work vary from overexcitement and zeal to dread and fear. And these are effects of the fall on our relationship to work. God gave Adam a job in the garden to tend the garden. And he gave him a helpmate to do that, Eve. And they, were, they had work to do. And it was a beautiful thing. But when the fall happened, it affected not only their relationship with God, but their relationship with their work. It was going to be hard. It was going to be not all that easy to do the things that they needed to do in the garden. Thorns and thistles. But as Jesus does in everything, he transforms our relationship with work. So let's look at a few points here as we study this section for us today. The first one is this, that workers are to work hard. Workers are to work hard. That seems very uh, simple, right? Workers are to work hard. Paul doesn't give workers a break here. He says that the, the, the employee is to obey in everything with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work as unto the Lord and not to men. God doesn't give loopholes here to the employee, but he expects the employee to work hard, to do a good job, an honest day's work. That whatever he, he or she is doing, to do it all to the glory of God. If I'm designing something, that I would design it in such a way that people would be able to look at it and say, man, she put her heart into that. She was honoring the Lord in her work. So the question is, do you see your work as a way to glorify God and to show him to other people? Whatever you do, the way that you make that Excel spreadsheet, the way that you clean a building, the way that you ch uh, check people out of the cashier's line, whatever you do, do you see that as a way to glorify your God? Secondly is this. Workers are to work primarily for their ultimate boss. Ultimate boss. Now, we're not talking about your boss man or your boss lady, the one that you uh, report to. We're talking about God. And, he, and right here in this text, what it is saying is that you and I, in our ups and downs, in the good times at work, in the bad times at work, we are to have in view our ultimate boss, which is God. He is our ultimate master. We in Scripture are called his bondservants, his slaves. We are his. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not a bad thing to be that. To say, I am yours. You created me. You made me. I am here to serve and obey you. The second half of this verse in 23 is really important. It says, as for the Lord and not for men. That's the way that we are to work. We're looking to please our ultimate boss, which is God. The third thing is this, that workers and bosses alike will be rewarded or punished for the way they did their work. Verse uh, 24 through 4.1, it talks really in depth about this. But God says our work matters, and it has consequences for our good or bad. Our work is either glorifying to God and building up his kingdom, or it isn't. It's doing one of those two things. The one who works under the Lord will see, receive here a beautiful inheritance. 
And the one who doesn't will be paid back for his wrongdoing. It's also why Paul warns the master, look, think about the way that you treat your employee. Because if you don't treat your employee fairly and justly, you will be paid back for your wrongdoing. So many applications there. But we've got to keep going. Number four, all work done for the Lord has dignity. And I want to hang out here for a minute because this is really important for us to see. All work in the Lord has dignity. Think about that. That's great news that our work matters. Our work matters. In thinking on verse 23, one commentator, he makes this conclusion. He says, this would transform the most menial responsibilities and give dignity to all of their work. Dignity to all of their work. And there's a book I've been reading that talks about this uh, kind of a theology of work uh, by Tim Keller. And in that book, he says this, no task is too small a vessel to hold the immense dignity of work given by God. Think of the supposedly menial work of house cleaning. Consider that if you did not do it or hire someone else to do it, you would eventually get sick and die from the germs, viruses, and infections that would breed in your home. Menial work. But our work matters before the Lord. Our work in our marriages, our work in our homes as parents, our work in our workplace and our place of employment, it matters. But you know what? A lot of times it just doesn't feel like it matters. I don't know about you guys, but when I go to work, even as a pastor, in my days I struggle with thinking that my work is meaningful, that my work is significant, that it's carrying out any good end. And I, I ask God, what are you doing? Like I, you, you tell me my work matters. It doesn't feel like it matters. Maybe in the middle of, of wiping baby's bottoms at a, at a daycare or checking people out in the store, filling out that spreadsheet, taking out the trash at church or whatever it is that you do on a day-to-day basis as your work, you may be saying, it doesn't feel like that meaningful or dignified work. But God is reminding us here that it is. Your work doesn't have to be this awesome and exciting job to make it meaningful. The ordinary, average work that you do day in, day out matters. God created you to do that work and to do it well. And he's helping you to do that. He hasn't left you on your own. By his grace and by his power, he is helping you to do this. And when you mess up, he is there to forgive you and to help you again. Well, as we come to a close, I... uh, thought about this um, song that uh, it's an old Christian band called Cavens Call and uh, the song is called Bus Driver okay and uh, I think this song really embodies what's going on here and I'll just summarize a little bit of it for you basically uh, the guy is, is telling us a story about a bus driver okay and uh, just imagine your, your city bus here you know the bus driver whoever you have takes you wherever you need to go but he talks about now he gets up every morning, you know, real early. He irons his clothes, gets off to work, and, uh, and does his daily routine of driving the bus. He talks about who he rides to his places of employment. He talks about a man who goes uh, to a store to work on uh, refrigerators. 
He talks about a lady who works um, uh, in retail, maybe something like that. We've talked about all these different people, right? That, that he drives to his places. But he begins to question the importance of his job. He says, I'm just a bus driver, okay? I do the same thing each and every day. I wake up at the crack of dawn, I get on my bus, I do my route, and I go pick people up and I drop them off at places. Would it really make all that big a difference if I wasn't here? Would it make that big of a difference if I was not doing the job that I had been given? He's really questioning this, and he says this. And I wonder how this would be if I was never here to drive this bus from Ashbury to Maine. I suppose this town would be the same with one bus less exhaust. But that bank and retail store, they just wouldn't be the same with the people that he drives. But what can I see from the limited confines of my bus driving seat? Only me. And he says, and it goes through the chorus, and I'm just a bus driver, what do I know? And then he tells himself, well, don't believe that. We're all just bus drivers, and it's time to go home. Just a bus driver. But he realizes that his driving that bus is important. God gave him that job. And as he, he does that job, he is doing dignified, important, valuable work unto the Lord and unto others. The same is true of you and me today. No matter what is the work that God gives us, the work that we do with our hands and with our minds, God gives us that work. And he says it is dignified work. It is valuable work. The question is, do we believe it? And that's the place where we just got to come again in repentance and faith and be like, Lord, I don't believe it a lot of times, but I need your help to believe it. I need your help because Monday's coming and I got to go back to work. I need your help to believe it. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. God, I thank you for your word here. It speaks uh, so quickly about so many different roles and responsibilities we have in life as uh, parents, as husbands and wives and children and workers and employees and bosses. God, we thank you that you care about it all. Lord, work is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. You created us to work. And Lord, as you transform us, as we are in Christ, we are transformed in every area of our life. And so we pray that in these areas, God, that you have put before us this morning, that you would continue to transform us, to be the people that you want us to be. Help us to believe your truth here as we go out today and as we wake up tomorrow morning and go about our normal, average, ordinary day. God, we pray for your grace, Lord, that you would bring your kingdom more and more through those things. We pray this in Jesus' name.